Thank you, Jesse. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12 is uh, where we will be finding ourselves this morning. You will find the book of Acts near the end of the Bible, uh, there in the New Testament. Even if you, as you look here at my Bible that's up here, you'll see that there's a lot of Bible in front of the book of Acts. Uh, so if you're new to uh, following Jesus or if you're kicking the tires of Christianity right now, and uh, maybe not all that familiar with God's Word, uh, don't hesitate to use the table of contents as well in your Bible. Or just ask a friend or get close to them and look over their shoulder and follow along. But Acts chapter 12, my name's Michael, one of the pastors here. And I know we've been uh, studying through the book of Acts over the last several months, and we'll be in the book of Acts, Lord willing, most likely, uh, through the end of the summer I don't know about you, but uh, I remember the old children's song, at least I was taught it when I was growing up in a church, and maybe it's familiar to you, my God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. You want me to sing it for you? Maybe not. Uh, There's a reason why Michael is up here first and not me, right? My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. It says the mountains are his, the valleys are his, the stars are his handiwork too. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. I thought about doing the motions like this, big, and then you kind of flex like this, but then Josh Bone over here would want to, right, challenge me to an arm wrestling match and all that bit, and so I thought we wouldn't do that. But my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing, there's nothing my God cannot do. Do you believe that? All right, we sing it. We teach it to our children, and yet sometimes in life we look at the circumstances or we feel as if maybe all the odds are stacked against us, or we see the events of the world in which we live, and maybe we begin to doubt or grow frustrated or become overwhelmed, and we forget this simple truth that my God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. In fact, just a few minutes ago, Derek came up to me. We all know Derek. He and Tori often help hold down this side of the sanctuary. And he came up and shared with me how he got a phone call from a friend who Derek said a couple weeks ago, we, if you remember, we talked about Paul's conversion there in Acts chapter 9. And it was the hope that we have for the hard-hearted believing that God can change the lives of even the hardest hearts. And Derek shared with me how in this phone conversation with a friend, Derek said, I would have categorized that person as the hard-hearted, that person who never, I just would never have thought, would trust in Jesus and would follow Jesus. And Derek said that in that phone conversation, he shared how he is now following Jesus and how God used difficult circumstances in his life where he had two nieces under the age of five get cancer and God healed both of those young ladies of that cancer and how this 
gentleman told Derek, he said, how long, how many more miracles am I going to have to do to show you how strong and that I'm real and that I'm true? And he said it was through those difficult circumstances that he came to follow Jesus. Right. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. Well, we find ourselves here in the book of Acts chapter 12, and over the last couple of weeks, of course, we had Easter Sunday a couple weeks ago, but last week we saw Cornelius' conversion, right? This Roman centurion, this man of power and influence who surrendered his life to the Lord, who, who called Peter, and Peter came and shared the gospel with him. And it seems now that in, in the trajectory of this storyline, like, right, life is good. For the church, even at the end of of uh, after shortly after Saul's conversion there in chapter nine, it, we were reminded that uh, actually at what, what is it? Chapter. I'm trying to remember. Right. Here we go. Yep. Saul's conversion. It is chapter nine. It talks about how there was peace. Right. That there was peace in the land for a period of time. And so the church has been experiencing in the timeline of this account of this true account that the church has experienced a time of peace, that they've not been persecuted. And here we're going to find that in chapter 12, we're going to be reintroduced with opposition, that not only is it going to just be persecution, uh, maybe in a, in a verbal way, but actually we're going to see how one of their own uh, is martyred. We're going to encounter the first or the second martyr of the faith. And so I invite you, let's go ahead and read. Uh, I'm going to actually read through all of chapter 12, and then we'll look through it and we'll walk through it together. And it says there in verse 1, and it reads very easy, uh, like a story, easy to follow along. It says, it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw this, when he saw that this was met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of, unle of unleavened bread. And after arresting him, after arresting Peter, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. And suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and he woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening he thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. 
Then Peter came to himself and he said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. And with, when this had dawned on him, he went on to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant, a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, well, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and they saw him, they were astonished. And Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. And after Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Let's stop there. We'll pick up the rest here in just a few moments. So what we see here is that after a season of peace, in fact, it, it's believed that the time period from Paul's conversion to this point is probably around nine years. In fact, historians are able to date based because we historically we know the date of Herod's death. This particular Herod who had a grandfather by the name of Herod and had a so right. So there's a, a number of Herods in succession here. This particular Herod ruled from 41 A.D. to 44 A.D. So we know, because Herod's going to die here in just a few minutes, we know that, uh, that this account takes place in A.D. 44. So there was a period of time that the church is spreading, that, that the witnesses are declaring the good news of Jesus and I think that's a helpful reminder because we read an account like this uh, and, we, and we convince ourselves, wow, this church just exploded overnight. But that wasn't necessarily the case. Yes, to some extent it did, but really the growth of the church took place over quite a few years. And right, we even live in this YouTube generation, don't we, right? This instantaneous change uh, time in which we watch a YouTube video and we convince ourselves that it will only take a week to put an addition on our house because I watched a, a YouTube video that only took 30 minutes and, and walked you through the entire process. And sometimes we forget that in our witnessing, That witnessing, that influence of a, of a godly witness takes time. It takes years. Uh, sometimes it takes generations. And so in that reminder, don't give up. Don't lose heart. Continue to be faithful in your witness. And don't be convinced that just because it, ha it hasn't happened in, in 30 days 
or in a year or two, that God's not using your faithful witness in the heart of your neighbor, in the heart of maybe your wayward children, uh, in the heart of a coworker, that people are watching, that maybe even one day you might get a phone call similar to like Derek got this week, that God used circumstances to draw some of the hardest hearts to himself. And so we do see, I guess, uh, really, as, as I somewhat kind of transition now, and as we look here into the text itself, what we're going to, be underst- what we're going to come to understand is that there's a world power, right, by the name of King Herod, that is standing in opposition to the church. And that sometimes when these powers of the world come against the church, we sometimes can become convinced or we can, we can cower in fear or we can, we, can, we can stop our witness because we're afraid of what might, might happen to us. But we're going to see here is that in this chapter is the most powerful, one of the most powerful rulers of the world by the name of King Herod as he is persecuting the church, that as he's trying to flex his muscle, that he doesn't stand against, uh, he doesn't stand a chance against the most powerful God. And that's the big idea for this morning, that we're going to see in this text that God is greater than all world powers. You might even say it in this way, that God is greater than all powers of this world. That, that God is greater, that that our witness, that God will use our witness to stand up against even some of the most mighty men and women who oppose the church. What we're going to see is that in the first portion is that Herod is going to flex his power, motivated by his pride, and so we'll, we'll uncover Herod's pride and power, but then we're going to see how does the church respond to, to that opposition or that power that's being leveraged against them, the church does what? Do they sharpen their swords? Do they, do they call the militia together? Do they wage a boycott campaign? What do they do? We're going to see that the church becomes persistent in their prayers. And then at the end, We didn't read this portion, but at the end, we're going to see how God's sovereign power and plan reigns and how God is going to use one of the squirreliest creatures of the world to bring a mighty man down. Because we're going to end talking about worms. Now, isn't that a wonderful thing? I thought about bringing some and passing them out among us, but I thought that might be proved to be a distraction. But we're going to see how God is sovereign over even the worms and how a mighty, how an earthworm that you might use for fishing bait can become a valiant warrior in God's hands against a powerful king. All right, so this is what we're we're seeing here. All right, so let's look at the first portion, is that Herod's pride and power. Again, chapter 12, we've read it already. It begins with King Herod putting James, who's the older brother of John the Apostle, to death. And you might remember James and John, they were fishermen. Does anyone remember their father's name? James and John, the sons of who? Of Zebedee. Yeah, that's right. If you've watched The Chosen, right, you might 
to have a little bit of a visual picture of, of maybe what they could have been like or, or acted like. And so we have James. James is the, is the brother of John, sons of Zebedee, that Herod arrested James and proceeded to put him to death. This is the second recorded martyrdom of Acts. Stephen is the first recorded martyr. And we see there in verses 1 and 2 that Herod most likely executed James. Just based upon historical record, it's, it's likely that Herod may have executed James by beheading or, or running a sword through him. And we see the response of the people. Right? You look there at verse 3, that after, after, Perse- after killing James... Uh, Herod realizes that it, it brought great delight to the non-believers, to the Jews specifically. And this is actually the first time in the book of Acts that the Jews are referred to in a, in a negative way. And what we're sensing is there's, there's a, we're now realizing that these chosen people, this, this nation of Israel whom God had chosen to bring the Messiah through, how they're rejecting the, the very Messiah. And so, so we're going, there, there's, a, there's a stark contrast that's being brought to our understanding here. And so it was with great approval that the Jews, they cheered, they were happy when James, one of those early disciples, was put to death. And so Herod, being a people pleaser, might you even say being a I don't want to say a good politician, but being a politician, he's looking, at his, he's looking at the opinion polls. And he is saying, oh, well, look at that. My approval ratings have now gone up. Well, if they liked me putting James to death, then let's go see if we can find Herod. I'm, not, I'm sorry, not Herod, but find Peter. Thank you for, for calling me out on that. Let's go see if we can find Peter. And so that's exactly what he did. He went and he finds Peter. And so what we're seeing here is that in this account, those who are opposing the Christian movement are are willing to stop at nothing, right? Like Stephen's account that was earlier in the book of Acts, they were willing to persecute to the point of death. Again, we we do see this ever-increasing divide between the people of Israel, the the chosen nation, and those who are actually believing in the promised Messiah. And what what we're reminded of is that as followers of Jesus Christ, we are drawing a line in the sand. We are putting ourselves in a position to be persecuted, to be made fun of, to be made a mockery. And maybe you have even been encouraged during this teaching series to be a more bold and courageous witness. And maybe you have, have found yourself, right, saying, okay, Lord, help me to witness to my coworkers at work. And maybe you have found yourself, you've stepped into that, But all of a sudden, you're met with being the butt of jokes. Or you're being met with, you're you're being dismissed by other people. My encouragement to you is don't give up. Live faithful lives in front of those who oppose you. 
stand firm in the gospel. Because we're going to see that there is no power in this world that is able to stand against God's power and his plan. Remember, my God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. And so we see Herod, he flexes his muscle. He, he allows his pride to be puffed up. He puts James to death. And some of us might say, well, whatever, what good can come from that? How, might, how will God use the death of one of his saints? And it is interesting, like James gets a very short obituary here. You think back a few chapters previous, Stephen gets like an entire chapter dedicated to him. And yet here we have faithful James, the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee, who left their fishing boats and they followed Jesus. They responded to that call and we think he, he only gets a passing mention by Luke here in the book of Acts. Some of us might wonder what good would come of this. There's an interesting record about James as he is led to his execution. And I'm going to put a parenthesis around this to say this is the record of a church historian, Eusebius, who I've, I've got a book over there. It's about this thick, all right? It's a thick book. I've not read it all. Uh, it's a long time reading, let's just say that. And But this gentleman, who's an early church historian, only removed a hundred or so years from these accounts, this, this, uh, this particular account, he records from a historical perspective what took place at James's execution. And he writes this, and he says, and concerning this James... Clement of Alexandria relates a story which is worthy of mention, telling it as he received it from those who had lived before them, before him. He says that the one who led James to the judgment seat before, before the judge, before Herod, when, when he saw him bearing his testimony. Okay, so the picture is this. There's a gentleman leading James, walking beside James, presenting him before the court. When that man saw James bearing his testimony, he was so moved that he confessed himself also to be a Christian. They were both therefore, he says, right? At this, we're thinking, oh, okay, so this is going to end up really well, right? This guy, he confesses to be a Christian. He goes, and, and how James is faithful testimony, that it's go that's going to happen, right? And, and then he's going to go home and tell all, all of his friends, but that's not what happens here. It says, they were both therefore, he says, led away together. And on the way, this man who's leading James to execution, he begged James to forgive him. And he, after considering a little, James, after considering a, a little, he said, peace be with you. And he embraced him in a holy kiss. And then what happens? They both were beheaded at the same time. That James's faithful testimony, in the midst of that, another man comes to faith through that, 
his faithful testimony and is willing to die because of James's faithful testimony in his life. And then the historian goes on and he says, and then as the divine scripture says, Herod, upon the death of James, seeing that the deed pleased the Jews, he attacked Peter also and committed him to prison. And he would have slain Peter if he had not, but the divine appearance of the angel who came to him by night wonderfully released Peter and thus liberated Peter for the service of the gospel. Such was the providence of God in respect to Peter. What we see here is James is responding in a faithful way to his persecution. That even as he is led to the end of his life, he is faithfully ministering to other people and he is calling others to repentance and to believe in the Lord. And I wonder, church, how are you responding to those who persecute and make fun of, to those who mock you or dismiss your witness? Are you responding in a way that would only cause them to be more interested in Jesus? Or are you joining them in harboring bitterness toward them? How are you responding to those who persecute you? So we see here, again, the chapter, what does it do? It begins by Herod's pride and his power. He's flexing his muscle. He's opposing the church. But how does the church respond? It says the church then was per persistent, persistent in their prayers. They persevered in their prayers. And we see this. Look there at verse 3 again. It says that when Herod saw that this met, was met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. And after arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. And so what does Herod do? He arrests Peter. And he sets up this incredible guard around Peter, right? He, so Peter has four guards that are overseeing him. In Herod's mind, Peter, he wants to make sure that Peter doesn't get away this time. Because if you remember earlier in the book of Acts, Peter did escape, right? He, he did get released from prison. So Herod wants to make sure, we, we have this sense that Herod is going to do all that he can do within his power to make sure that Peter is led to the executioner's block. Verse 5, how does the church respond? It says, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. We see that there is an urgency of the situation in this situation. That the church was taking advantage of that time because Herod determined in his heart that he would not put Peter to death until after the Passover festival. Or after that, that festival of, of unleavened bread. And that's an eight-day festival. And so the church gathers together in prayer and they said, okay, we've got eight days. We better pray for Peter. Right, and the first day goes by, and they, they, they gather the next day. Okay, we got seven days. We better keep praying for Peter. <sighs> Nothing happened. Okay, we got six days. We better be praying for Peter, right? Six, five, four, three, two, one. And I bet by that last day, they're probably really starting to sweat it, aren't they? In their minds, they're probably thinking to themselves, oh, boy, if the Lord doesn't do something soon, he's gone. We're going to lose him. 
You notice how the scripture tells us that Peter's release took place on the night before Herod was going to execute him. Right? You, you, you're almost wondering, well, why didn't, if God was going to do that anyway, why didn't he just do that earlier? Right? Why didn't he release Peter at the beginning of that? But we have to remind ourselves what a sweet dependence upon God that these believers learned as God steps in at the 11th hour that they would have missed out on all of this opportunity to gather together as a church to pray earnestly. You see, that's how God uses, sometimes that's how God uses our trials and our persecution in our life, isn't it? To draw our hearts toward Him. To make us learn to depend on Him more and more and more. We see that the church was together in their prayers, right? They gathered at a home. And they were gathering together. I think we should be reminded that there is, there's a significance when we as a church pray together. And on the first Wednesday of each month, we have that opportunity. And I want to encourage all of us to continue to step into that opportunity to gather together as a church and go to the Lord side by side, locking arms with each other, shoulder to shoulder, going to the throne of God, asking him to work in the lives of those whom we love, in our community, in our neighbor's lives. We see that the church was together, but we also see that the church was earnest in their prayers. Literally, this picture is, is that of, of a muscle that's being stretched to the limit. Or think of a rubber band, right? Have you ever taken a rubber band and stretched it to its limits? That's the type of prayer that these believers were participating in. When was the last time your prayers for the salvation of those whom you love would be described as earnest? When was the last time you just, right, that your prayers would even be described as being stretched to the limits? More often than not, it's a, our prayers are described, Lord, thanks for this food. Give us a good day. In Jesus' name, Amen. All right, I got my prayer out of the way. Dig in. Or we don't pray with deep earnestness to the Lord. This is convicting to us, isn't it? That's how they responded. And so here we again, look, look there at verse 6. It says, the night before Herod was to bring him to, tr to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. Can you catch this truth? Peter is asleep the night before he's, a, he's to be executed. Peter's sleeping. Believe me, I have far less worries that keep me up at night than the fact that tomorrow morning I'm going to die. And yet Peter is able to sleep. Talk about a man who knew the peace of God. Talk about someone who trusted in God's sovereign plan and believed in him. We also see that not only was he just sleeping, but he was sound asleep. That the angel shows up, the angel of the Lord shows up, right? Fills, the light fills the room. And, and Peter is not roused from his sleep. What did the angel have to do? The angel had to poke him in the side. Bing, bing. Peter, psst. 
wake up. And then we see as you, as you go on, as we travel along there in verses 7 through 10, right, at first Peter thinks it's just a vision, right, as, as the angel leads him out, out of the prison. What, what a beautiful picture. The chains, it just says the chains fell off. He was chained on each side. He was chained to two soldiers. And every three to six hours, there would be a shift change in the prison guards, why? Because these prison guards were to remain alert and awake to guard this prized possession that Herod was going to take out, execute, and hopefully get greater approval ratings. Yet here Peter is, the night before his execution, he's sound asleep. There's this, this sleep, there's this miraculous supernatural event that takes place. It does seem that it's a tragedy in our day that we often struggle to believe that God still works in miraculous ways. We do sing songs like, my God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. But yet, really, when push comes to shove, we struggle to believe that God is still able to work in supernatural and miraculous ways like this. It seems like we've lost the understanding of a sovereign and a supernatural God. As long as we Christians think that God cannot or will not or somehow limited to being able to actually work supernaturally, if, if all we think is that God is dependent on our schemes and our plans and our ideas and our ingenuity, then we may never see God work mightily in the world in which we live or through our church or through our faithful witness. Instead, the church found themselves at the end of themselves. Seven days go by. Lord, would you work? Would you do something? Maybe we need to ask the Lord to help us to believe that the same God who delivered Peter from the hands of Herod is still working in miraculous ways today. And that God is able to deliver your friend, your family member, from the clutches, from the chains of this world and deliver them into the freedom that only is available in Christ Jesus. Like that should fuel our prayers when we see that God, the same God who worked in this way 2,000 years ago, is still, he is still working today. So we go on then, it says in verses 11 through 15, Peter comes to himself. In other words, it's like he's finally wiped the sleep out of his eyes. He's like, wait a second, this is the real deal. <laughs> now I know, he says in verse 11, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. Again, there's the juxtaposition between man's plans, man's power to oppose the church and what God has in mind and what God is doing. And so what does Peter do? Evidently, uh, this home was probably a regular meeting place for the church. And so Peter is probably assuming, hey, I bet the church is probably praying for me. They probably had been praying for James at the same location. And so, so, so Peter makes his way there. And what does he do? He knocks on the door. The fact that the servant girl Rhoda answers the door is a detail that even emphasizes the authenticity of this account because if you are fabricating this story in some way, you probably wouldn't have the servant girl by a very common name by the name of Rhoda answer the door. It may have been someone else. We see Rhoda answers the door and what is it? She is completely overjoyed. 
This is almost, I, I almost feel my children enjoy watching the Three Stooges, right? And, and they get out, have all these unique situations. Like, picture what's happening. <laughs> Peter, is, is, he, he's knocking on the gate. Rhoda answers. She sees that it's, um, that, it, that it's Peter there. And so she shuts the door, and she runs back in, and they're, and they're trying to figure out, do you kind of picture, no, it's, it can't be Peter. It must be his angel. But it is Peter. So you got right, these different arguments, this different conversation that's taking place. We almost get this sense that even the people in their prayers even struggled to believe that God was going to save Peter. Because they even said, it must be his angel, right? Or, or, or must be maybe some sort of uh, beyond, be, beyond the grave type experience. Or, or maybe, maybe his guardian angel shows up in the form. It can't actually be Peter. But yet they still were practicing prayer. This is good for us to see. Because we do struggle at times with believing that God is able, that my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. But just because at times we struggle to have the faith to believe, don't allow that to dictate or to govern your practice of prayer. Right? It's, I, I said this a few weeks ago. I think they're on Easter Sunday, right? It's better to have a three out of four faith, right? Or a three faith, right, out of ten. You remember that level I said out of zero, zero to ten? This guy said, my faith is about a three and a half, but it's in Jesus. You're better off to have a three and a half faith than a ten faith in yourself. And so here they are. They're going to the Lord, and God moves God moves, and he moves in a mighty way. And so what happens? Peter is still, he stands out there. He keeps knocking in verse 16. Finally, they come back. They welcome him in. Peter comes in, and he shares with them what happened. What happens? Peter actually leaves the scene. Peter gets out of Dodge, and he's using wisdom here because he knows that Herod is going to be rather upset. And then in the verses following, right, it gives us this idea that, that back at the ranch, okay, back, back on the scene, the next morning, Herod, and they realize where did, what happened to Peter? Where's he at? And so he's executing, he's trying to figure out what, what went wrong, what happened to Peter. Peter has now left the scene. He's left. And we see that God answers the prayers of the believers of the church. And then we see here, this chapter ends with God showing that his sovereign power and plan ultimately is what will, what will prevail. Again, it begins with Herod's pride and power opposing the church. We see the church's response to that opposition is increased prayer, is earnestness in prayer. And then we see that Herod, this powerful man, is brought to his end. Look there again, and I'll fall, conclude with this. It says, then Herod, then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea, and he stayed there. He'd been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together, and they sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, 
The people asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. And now we're going to see Herod's continued pride and arrogance. It says, on the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne, and he delivered a public address to the people. And they shouted, this must be the voice of a god, not of man. Again, Herod's pride is, is being puffed up. And immediately, because Herod did not what give, he did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down. <laughs> and he was eaten by worms, and he died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. The chapter comes to an almost comical end for Herod. The irony just seems to be very thick here. You have this powerful king filled with pride, unable to bend his knee to the sovereign God, who God then brings to an end not by force through a mighty army, not by the Christian militia that had mounted a campaign against him, but by God's powerful and sovereign plan, God uses one of the lowliest creatures of the world, the earthworm, or the worm of some, of some sort, and brings this mighty, powerful man to his demise. It says the angel of the Lord struck, struck down Herod. He's eaten by worms. In the plans of a sovereign and powerful God, the earthworm is a mighty warrior. Next time you go fishing with live bait, think of that, right? So what are we reminded of? I think through this, there's a number of lessons for us. That sometimes God rescues people like James through death, and sometimes God rescues people like Peter by saving him from death. And that all of that is going, God is going to use all of that to his glory. That God is able to use even some of those most dark days to draw men and women to himself. I think there's a lesson here for us to, to remind ourselves the, the value, the important practice of not just prayer, but prayer together as a church body that's earnest, where we persevere in that prayer. That we don't give up hope that days, months, even years might go by. That as a church, we should continue to be prayerful. And finally, we do that because we believe that God is greater than all the world powers. That God is greater than all the world powers. That this final point there, point three, I skipped over it quick, is that we see God's sovereign power and plan. That Herod is no match for God. And whoever opposes you is no match for God either. So continue to serve as a witness so that these words of verse 24 might be true today, that the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Would you pray with me?
Father, we thank you, uh, Lord, for your word. And God, I pray that it that your word would encourage and strengthen our hearts. Father, help us to stand firm. Help us to be diligent in our prayers. Father, help us to be courageous and bold in our witness. And we pray, Lord, then that your power and your plan would be, would be seen, it would be shown, and, and ultimately that your plan would be carried forward. And I pray this in Jesus' name.